Welcome to the Working Title Show, wonderful listeners. This episode's topic is mindfulness and meditation, which gives us a lot of room for discussion. Modern science is coming up with some very interesting findings about the benefits of mindfulness-based living. From yoga to Buddhism to secular mindfulness practice, the world is our oyster and we're free to enjoy our fill. There are so many avenues to explore in the world of awareness, so let's get into it. Sometimes when I sit to meditate, I feel pressure. I feel this pressure in my mind and it beckons me to take the reins and steer the ship of my consciousness, but that is a cumbersome task. My thoughts waver and appear flickering through my psyche like fireflies on a humid July Connecticut evening. I feel pressure concerning my control over these flashes of thought. I feel pressured to have more control over the lightning bugs. And I know that this pressure is self-imposed. Alas, I feel it nonetheless. I feel pressured to sit and still my body. And sometimes my focus on relaxing seems counterproductive. I must be doing it wrong. Or maybe this is what it should be like. What should meditation be like? What am I actually trying to accomplish by taking a seated posture and breathing rhythmically? I sit and breathe and watch these flickering thoughts pass through my psychic realm. I notice that some thoughts are analytical and those I label intellect. I experience thoughts of the past and label those memory. I witness thoughts describing what my body is sensing of its surroundings and I label that mind. I know that this I that I refer to is part of the whole act and label it ego. Am I meditating yet? The pressure is building. I focus my awareness on the breath. I feel my belly expand with air and contract with expiration. I swear I can sometimes feel the energy flow from my hips to my toes back up through the spine and into something above my own head. Maybe it's just my heightened sense of awareness allowing me to notice the circulatory processes of my body. Maybe I'm analyzing it too much. Sit and breathe. Sit like the mountain. Breathe like the wind. Sit like the mountain. Breathe like the wind. Where is the pressure when everything flows without my disturbing it? Where am I when I am witnessing the drama of physical body and psychic body? Who am I as these two lovers dance their passions for me to absorb? I feel pressured to absorb every ounce of each moment of experience. I feel pressured to learn and to allow this learning to manifest into my daily experience. I feel as though I am on a mission to find the truth behind all things, and sometimes I feel like I'm getting absolutely nowhere with it. Sometimes I sit and breathe mechanically, as if a robot programmed to aim at that which it can never attain. I feel trapped. I feel alone. 
I feel as though I'm too far up the mountain to call down, but not yet far up enough to commune with those on high. I sit and breathe and watch my worries. Who is worried if I am the one seeing them, if I am the one experiencing them? There are these anxious thoughts that I can see with my inner eye. To see them, they must be separate from my inner eye. They cannot be me, whatever it is that I am. But most of the time, this analysis won't abate the flow of worry, and sometimes all I can do is sit and breathe and watch them come and see them go. This is meditation. To transcend our current predicament, we can't use any method that would reasonably come to mind. If we know how to do it, then we would do it. I certainly don't, but I know that when I sit and breathe, it leads to a shift in perspective that has to count for something. If I am to make sense of this, every bit of life and everything living means, then I need a vast perspective shift. At least that's what I think I need. But who am I? I'm looking to get to know who I am. Am I a superstructure of cells begetting consciousness or consciousness begetting a superstructure of cells? I sit and I breathe. I watch the eye of every situation as an add-on to each thought. Breathing deeply, I sense these thoughts slowing and I think I can almost feel an inner silent light. I think, and that's when it all goes belly up. I comes into the picture and clarity is lost. Sit and breathe. There is no pressure to do so. Sit and breathe because you can. Sit and breathe because you are feeling out what you are made of. Sit and breathe and realize that pressure makes diamonds. Pressure is a process and we all get to take part. We take part when we sit and breathe and meditate on such things. to get to know someone, I sit and listen to that person. I spend time with that person. I give my utmost care and attention to this person. When I want to get to know myself, I must do the same thing. I must sit and listen to my body, and so I meditate. Meditation is a means to an end in my journey at present. Meditation is a practice that I practice so that I can more clearly experience my body. I sit and breathe and calm the body. Deep and relaxing breathing can slow my heart rate. It can quiet all the processes going on so that they aren't halted, but they're slowed down. This allows me to observe. Once I can steady my body in a relaxed yet solid posture, then I can scan my body from the toes to the top of the skull. Breathing rhythmically helps keep my body in a tranquil state. The slower I breathe, the more I can feel the oxygen adding to my bloodstream and optimizing my cellular performance. 
I breathe in deeply and feel my muscles and tendons expand and fill up with oxygen-rich blood. This feels very pleasant. <clears throat> but pleasant isn't my practice. This is simply a side effect of bringing the body into a state of focused relaxation. This sounds counterintuitive. Sitting and breathing brings a natural awareness into the body. As pleasant and unpleasant situations arise, I note them and listen to them and pay attention to them fully, or at least to my fullest capacity. Tingly sensation in the left ankle, muscles expanding and steadying around the cervical spine, spinal musculature remaining solid during inspiration and expiration. I watch these thoughts just as I watch the sensations occurring in my body. I get to know my body on an intimate level. I link my focus to my breath and my breath to my body, completing the circuit once my focus reaches my body. Then the cycle is started and I tend to its flow. I feel my body and feel my breath and feel my focus and feel all three align. Like clockwork ticking away, I sit and observe the cycle because the more often I reach this state, the easier it is to lean into. At certain points, I feel like I'm not doing it at all. It's like the body and breath and awareness want to be in union. It's as if my natural state is this heightened sense of connection between the facets of my personality. It's like heaven on earth sometimes, and I'm only getting started. Upright Posture When meditating, one must remain in an upright posture. Even when exercising, working, watching Netflix, posture is important. Proper posture allows us to breathe in and out with ease, and this should be a pleasant sensation. Good posture makes us feel good, and bad posture makes us feel bad. Now think of posture as morality. Good posture equals ethical and moral behavior, whereas bad posture equals unethical and immoral behavior. In many spiritual traditions, sin and sanctity are seen as being against the flow of life or with it, respectively. What I mean is that good actions are those which are appropriate with respect to life itself. The Hindus call it Ritta. The Christians call it God's will. It's been called fate and destiny. What it always means, though, is upright. There's something to sitting upright, to living in an upright fashion. There's something powerful behind such a lifestyle, and it's mostly the discipline that comes along with it. Living righteously enriches life, and it allows us to realize and experience our full potential. So sit upright. <laughs> Meditation on Suffering We all go through hell. This is part of the deal, 
however, this human condition that we share. We love and we lose. We see sickness and poverty. We experience suffering in various ways, but we all suffer. Pain is not just a thing of the body. Deep pains can reside in the psyche. We run to comforts to aid us, to revive us, to comfort us. We need comfort because life is hard. It is designed to be hard, but knowing that will never make it easy, I promise. The thing we can help, our point of free will, exists in the reaction and adaptation to suffering. Accommodate it, friends, because we know it's coming. We can be wise, flexible, patient, and compassionate. We can also be absent-minded, rigid, short-tempered, and mean. The choice is ours and only ours. It's a simple truth, but simple is clean. It's efficient. We can suffer by the barbell or by the bottle of beer. We can sweat hard from work or sweat hard from play. And the beauty of the system is that we can change. Everything is always changing, so we have unlimited moments in which we can adapt and learn. The here and now is where we transform suffering into salvation. Right here and right now is where we bleed and sweat and cry tears of pain and put them all together into, un- into a united purpose to transcend. We can go above and beyond petty aches and pains. We can struggle and strive through our torments. We have the power to last the test of time, but can we pass the test of time? Did we get the point of this whole experience by the time that our sun sets? You have the power to strip away many superfluous troubles located wholly in your judgment and to possess a large room for yourself, embracing in thought the whole cosmos, to consider everlasting time, to think of the rapid change in the parts of each thing, of how short it is from birth until dissolution, and how the void before birth and that after dissolution are equally infinite. That sentence was written by Marcus Aurelius in the second century. I would say that this directly relates to our suffering. Our judgments catch us and hold us and trap us. Our likes and dislikes can sometimes be shackles. I know I've spent nights flipping through what Netflix offers. I would scroll and scroll, unable to decide which thing to watch because I wanted maximum entertainment. I judged that watching something suboptimal was unacceptable and so my preference for entertainment left me blankly scrolling. I was at moments like a zombie just staring at the screen. That's not the end of the world, but I was suffering from my own needs and doing so without purpose. What Marcus is getting at with his quote is that we can all throw away our superfluous judgments and be a whole lot happier because of it. We can expand our needs to include the needs of others and we can find unity and wholeness as we need less for ourselves. We suffer, but we choose our suffering through our behaviors and thought patterns. If we employ mindfulness, we can have a clearer picture of how we are adding to our lot in life. 
Once we've accomplished this feat, we can begin to change towards the positive. We can suffer with grace and dignity because we know we're going somewhere with every moment of joy and each second of sorrow. We can transcend suffering by accepting it and respecting it enough to learn from it as a valued teacher. Then we can truly call ourselves students of life. Meditation on Mindfulness Mindfulness as a concept can trace its earliest origins to ancient India. The Sanskrit word for mindfulness is smriti or sati in the language of Pali. Smriti means memory. It means that which is to be remembered. In my interpretation, smriti is to constantly remember what my purpose in life is. It is also an awareness of my choices and how they affect myself and others. To achieve my purpose, I must practice the art of memory. If I remember what I'm here for, then I act accordingly. If I forget my purpose, then I stray from my path. Mindfulness isn't a cure-all pill that I can take twice daily. It's a constant moment-to-moment practice. Smriti is recollection. Like scattered toys in a children's playroom, I can gather up all the variables in my life. I can collect them in different ways, recollecting them each time to find what works for me. I have to keep in mind that what works for me won't necessarily work for everyone. I collect that thought and I add it to the pile. My collection grows and it shrinks depending on what life throws my way. Sometimes I'm so busy it feels like I'll never grasp hold of any order. Sometimes I'm so impoverished of new events that chaos seems an interesting gambit. Smriti is recalling that thought. Mindfulness is recalling that I'm here to grow and evolve. Whether I do so quickly or slowly doesn't matter so long as I remember the goal. At least in theory, this is how it works. In practice, I savor the big wins and I yearn for moments of deep experience when they eventually fizzle out for a time. In practice, life can overwhelm me and toss me about like a ship in the vast and raging ocean. Life can also be a calm sea, completely flat, so that I can see the horizon in full. Smriti is the ability to recall my attachment to emotions for or against this thing or that. I remember that calm seas are perfect for reflection and storms are perfect for experience. I remember that chaos and order serve their own purposes and not mine. I recall that tranquility and volatility are equal and opposite. I remember to learn from both teachers as best I can. Hot and cold, light and dark, the duality around me points to a unity within me. I remember that unity in brief and fleeting moments that opened my eyes to the beauty of life. And then I remember to keep practicing, keep looking, keep seeking that ultimate state of total recall. And when I make it to that point, then I shall remember the way 
and help to guide others beyond mere existence. I shall guide others to the path of mindful living. But for now I must remember that there is much work to be done remembering all of this. Mindfulness is paying attention on purpose, in the present moment, non-judgmentally, according to John Kabat-Zinn. He knows a thing or two about mindfulness, being an active figure in the movement for years. I'd like to dissect this definition into four quarters. The first quarter of mindfulness is paying attention. This takes focus, and this is where meditation comes in handy. Consistent practice in calming the body, the mind, and the breath can lead to wondrous results concerning our ability to pay attention. To sit and breathe and scan the body can lead to a deeper and richer mind-body connection. To focus on remaining in the present moment can discipline the mind and make a habit of remaining aware. Paying attention to breathing, posture, and streams of thought becomes easier. The hard part is doing it every day. This is where we reach the second quarter of mindfulness, on purpose. Being aware of our purpose, our motives, our intentions can shed light on what we're doing here. We can hone in on what we want and how we can get there, but that involves living on purpose. To sit and meditate twice every day takes a discipline born of purpose. To exercise daily while working full-time takes devotion forged in the fires of intent. Awareness of our purpose is a practice which develops our ability to achieve our goals. On to the third quarter, which is the present moment. The present moment is all we've ever had have, or will have, life is a seemingly continuous stream of now moments, but it's never not now. Then is then, and it's unchangeable, rigid. Now is fluid, flexible, and bursting with potential. Now is the present moment, and now is where we live. We, must for, we mustn't forget that for too long at a time. Now is always here for us to be true to ourselves. Now we are authentic. Now we are alive. Now we can change ourselves and the world because now never lets us down. Now is the time to relinquish our judgments and this is the fourth quarter of mindfulness. If you wear rose-colored glasses, you're gonna be missing red flags. The way we view the world is sometimes our biggest impediment in enjoying it. Traffic is unfortunate and annoying, but it's not the end of the world. It isn't hard to keep a realistically positive attitude once you get the hang of it. Hang up the constant critique of your experience and simply experience. Realize that most of our thoughts and opinions are just thoughts and opinions. Sometimes we overcomplicate our situation. Sometimes we view it from a difficult perspective. Our natural mode of life is this raw experience, uncolored and unfettered by particular tastes and aversions. 
So being mindful of our effect on life can greatly reduce our strain on life. If we're aware of the demands that we put to life, we may notice that some of them are unnecessary. We can learn by practice how to judge for ourselves. If we're going to speak on mindfulness, we must also necessarily speak on distractedness. To understand the spectrum as a whole, we must study true and false, north and south. I see a lot of distractedness in my behaviors. When I'm waiting in line, I feel the urge to reach into my pocket and check my phone, even when I don't have anything in mind. I don't need to text anyone or check my emails. I reach into my pocket purely for the distraction of it sometimes. Instead of just waiting in line, I need to be entertained. I need to be distracted and I know it. But that's the first step. I have a problem with distractions. I'm an addict. I can sit here and say that society and technology have made me this way, but I know that that isn't true, not entirely. Society and technology offer the tools of distraction, but only if I use them that way. I can be productive and utilize the modern tools at my command. I can also choose to surround myself with people who enrich my life and help me understand the different aspects of the human condition. If I'm distracted, I can always check on what I'm choosing to do. Passing the buck won't help me be mindful. Mindfulness and Science As early as the 1970s, medical and psychiatric researchers have been learning from mindfulness practices, which have existed for centuries. The mindfulness movement has masterfully blended ancient practices with modern science, and the results are thrilling. I can recall hearing my grandparents and other elders tell me that a positive attitude goes a long way, and those words were totally unappreciated by me at the time. However, I now see the value in such thinking. The vast amount of research going on in the modern fields of medicine and psychology gives credence to a philosophy focused on the total experience. By this I mean, I see a trend in which we view health in a holistic manner, taking into account the body as well as the mind, and understanding the human experience as a whole. In this section, I'll introduce a figure in the modern mindfulness movement. Fritz Koster is an expert in Buddhist psychology, mindfulness training, as well as being a founder of the Institute for Mindfulness-Based Approaches. In his efforts of bringing mindfulness to the forefront of the health field, Koster has taught so many people practical and effective mindfulness techniques which have enriched their lives permanently. Born in the Netherlands in 1957, Fritz skipped the university route Instead, living in Southeast Asia as a Buddhist monk for six years, he has written several books on the topic of Buddhist psychology. After his return to the Netherlands, he worked as a psychiatric nurse. His interests were in secular mindfulness practice and teaching. Koster is now affiliated as a trainer with various institutes across Europe. As a practitioner and writer, 
Koster collaborates with Eric Vandenbrink, and whom, with whom he developed a follow-up program for participants who have already followed a mindfulness-based training. The program is called MBCL, or Mindfulness-Based Compassionate Living. They te- teach workshops and teacher training programs on MBCL all throughout Europe. show um in preparation for this episode of the working title show i made it a point to up my own meditation game starting two weeks ago i began meditating twice daily i started with three minutes and added one minute every day today i meditated twice for 15 minutes each time my method was to allow myself time to get comfortable with sitting and breathing in a calm and attentive fashion. I noticed that after years of struggling with focus, having a definite plan helped me immensely. Of course, my bad experiences involving meditation stemmed from my lack of awareness. I wasn't aware of why I couldn't focus, why I couldn't relax. Now I've come to know myself well enough to know that I enjoy and benefit from structure. Bringing a structured approach to my meditation allowed my mind to let go of the constant wondering. Instead of wondering if I'm meditating properly, I could place my focus on my muscles and tendons and lungs and spine. I could feel my breath and how it affected my body. Each day, the extra minute allowed me to sink into the practice a little bit more deeply. Knowing that my alarm would ring after the allotted time took a lot of worry off of my plate. I plan to continue my practice twice daily, and I'm excited to learn more about my body and mind in deep and enriching ways. I plan to continue this podcast and talk about topics like this. I plan to be thankful and grateful for each listener out there because I know that our time is valuable. So, until next time, folks, be good.